so that first record it came out in 2012 obviously it was several years in in the working um and uh, let's talk about some of the people that were on there um a lot of uh or several p-funk members including george clinton himself and uh some of those that are very unfortunately aren't with us anymore like gary scheider and belita woods um peanut um from from p-funk um, but also guys like um, Ian Neville from Dumpster Funk and um, Danny Bedrosian, another P-Funk guy, uh, Sidney Barnes, an old-time guy but has a lot of P-Funk uh, also. And several of these guys have been on this show. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but um, you know, Danny and Sidney have been on. And um, So how did you specifically sort of get next to the p-funk camp and then maybe talk about a couple of the others too sure um well the the, the p-funk camp came from two different sides actually um i had reached out to belita and kendra through social media um but the booty band had worked with sydney barnes and there was a show that the booty band was playing I think it was at the Capital City Carnival or something. And it was Fishbone, P-Funk, and Booty Band. And after the shows, I believe JP and Derek ran into Gary Scheider in the lobby area, and they got chatting with him. And um, next thing you know, they're all on, they're on the phone with Sid, Sid and Gary are now talking. All of a sudden, they're reuniting Sydney with with Funkadelics, and they got. Uh, I think they got Gary's number, and so JP had hit Gary up about doing the project, and about that same time, Belita and Kendra were getting back to me saying they were they were all about it. And then Gary called up one night and he's like, hey, you want George? We're like, what? We had never even considered asking about George. It wasn't, we didn't even, yeah, we didn't think that was possible. And then 10 minutes later, we're on the phone with George. And George is offering up his studio to let us go down and finish up the album in. And that's when shit got real crazy. <laughs> wow. So, how familiar were you by that point with like Parliament Funkadelic? I was familiar enough to know the obvious songs that everybody knows. I was about to go on one of the most informative, amazing musical journeys of my life about that time because there was just so much that I had no idea about that George had been part of and Gary had been part of and Bernie and Bootsy all of them had been part of and what they had created and how it had shaped music as we know it um how it's shaped culture as we know it yeah <laughs> it's I knew, deep man it's deep yeah i knew nothing really about funk but somehow i got 
dead center and in the thick of it all real quick <laughs> well probably maybe up to that point the chili peppers were your closest yeah i mean i had like i had a george clinton like compilation some kind of something that i don't even remember what disc it was i had something and that was about it and then maybe it's lying in the family stone thing i had listened to a lot of disco though i'd listened to chic and you know some stuff that was kind of the the next i guess that next era of sound that wasn't really you know it was disco but it had a lot of funk elements for sure mm-hmm. um so i was i was a little hip to that too but but yeah it, it got wild with the stuff that they were opening my eyes to because basically gary when we finished up that volume one session the, the the big ones when he realized i didn't have a band to go back to you know, he kind of took me under his wing and was like, come along with us. Um, and so for, you know, for several years, I spent a lot of time just kind of hanging out and, and rolling around with those guys and learning a lot and trying not to get in the way, sometimes getting in the way. <laughs> a lot of times not knowing where my place was within it. <laughs> and Gary's being like, just, get up there and just don't get in the way. So did you get to play with them actually? Um, I got up and every once in a while would like bang on a tambourine. Um, you know, I'd, I'd jump up every once in a while and, and mix it up. But, you know, it was, it was never, um, I never knew where I stood necessarily. <laughs> so I, I tried not to make ripples yeah, I tried not. To, I tried not to make ripples while participating. Well, what can you tell uh, viewers, listeners about some of those guys and gals' talents that you witnessed? Well, that particular camp, there's historically such a huge number of people are not only talented and proficient at their instrument, but have um, taken it elsewhere. They've expanded on the possibilities of what, you know, you know, burning with the synth. Um, You know, Eddie Hazel, Gary, Kid Funkadelic with some of the guitar sounds, um, and the and the, the composition and and the way they would approach stuff, and um, you know one of the things came out with George and and about Atomic Dog being um, them listening to a lot of it backwards, and George not realizing it, and them just going with it, you know stuff like that where. I don't want to get into some of the stuff because I feel like I had a chance to look into the recipe book while I was working down in that studio and saw some things that to me made sense about 
why and how George was able to do some of the stuff that he was doing because I saw the at, at times some of the angles he was coming at from it um, and it was mind-blowing because it it was it was like watching a child play with a new toy to some degree where they don't know its limitations so they just go wherever their brain takes them with it until something says don't do that or that's not how that's supposed to be and with with the way a lot of the uh, a lot of the guys and gals not that um that camp the way they look at things is just set from a different lens and it and it's fucking wild and it's awesome to see and understand you know because i've heard times where people are trying to learn um you know an old funkadelic song and you're like well we can't figure out the two three guitar parts are here well that's because there's 12 guitar parts there you know it's like you know it wasn't just one or two it was different things doing serving different purposes like i remember we were tracking 2012 down in the studio and gary was doing some backing vocals on it and he does this thing it's like and we're just like what what's he doing like why are we doing this and then he's like give me another one and then he does it again and basically doubles every little grunt and squeal and whatever he had just done and we're still looking at it like what is this then we drop it down in there and it's accentuating different parts of the lead vocalist vocal part and making those things pop out and do things that was just like whoa that's some you know but who would think in noises to bring some some something out or there'd be times that Gary would be jamming on on a guitar part and the guitarist across from him be like dude that's amazing what is that and Gary would be like I don't know you just played it <laughs> and he would pick up on like some really awesome part that the performer had just skipped right over and just started grooving on it and it was just you know he would they would they do stuff like that it's it's always just a, it's a whole different recipe their own language really yeah. yeah well you know and you have these guys coming to this project i mean they're sort of accustomed to this kind of environment right because there was such a big collective under george clinton that he would bring into studios and create things and figure them out later and things like that so that must have helped i would think uh sort of get the project off to a, a rolling starter yes and no um heart okay so i guess back in, in the very beginning there was only a handful of the old school players that had been around that kind of environment before and a lot of it was new players you know not new players but players from 
um, the next generation, like Galactic and Dirty Dozen, well, like Dirty Dozen Brass Band has been around forever, but Galactic and Dumpster Funk and, and, and those cats that they were used to going in, you know, you do a writing session and, you know, eventually you flush it all out and maybe a year down the road you record it and make an album. And we're just flying through shit. Like everyone was looking at us like, holy shit, what are these guys doing? Everybody, everybody that, that was part of that initial one that didn't kind of understand that whole whatever we were doing. I'm not even sure we understood what we were doing at the time, but um they all they all listened back and were like, man, I wasn't expecting the album to sound anything like this. Like they saw the chaos and and just like how it was. It's a lot of people. You got a lot of people in a room, a lot of stuff going on. And, and so, so it only went to a little bit of help. And also because those bigger situations were people that had already worked together a million times, you know, it was also a little different because this was one of these things where, you know, people knew each other's faces, but for the most part, everybody was kind of like in there on their own. How long did it take to actually, you know, cobble together what would become the album, you know, and was it really hard to decide what to not include? And Well, we didn't have any other choices. We had what we had. It was just that we had those 10 songs and then we wound up having one of the songs remixed in the Amplify for the hip hop, which is Platinum. So it's very, very different than the way things are today. Like right now, I, I was just going through and I've got, I don't know, 50 unreleased songs or so that are in various forms that are, you know, yeah, probably at least five or six albums worth of material that will all get used. None of it. And then probably another, I don't know, 25, 30 songs that nothing will happen to and tons of jams and stuff like that and those are from other sessions yeah that's from the that's some carryover from the volume two sessions um and then the stuff that we did when we started recording out of studio 606 how how did you come up with the uh we'll move on from the, the i just have a couple more questions about that volume one sure um How'd you come up with the artwork and the concept? Um, because it certainly was attention getting. And I remember, you know, this thing, this record sort of uh, just appeared. You know, I'm a guy who's dialed into funk. Uh, and the thing just seemed to come out of nowhere, you know, from my perspective. I was like, what exactly is this? You know, who are these guys? You know, I was so used to over the years of different members of P-Funk guesting on different artists' albums. But this was such an unusual combination. And I was like, is it from the P-Funk camp? Or is it from, where is it from? And what is it? And this crazy cover? And yeah, it was something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a lot of confusion for a while. And that, that, was, that was a challenge, too. But uh, the cover was done by an artist named Emic. And Emic did Erica Badu's covers and, you know, a few other pretty recognizable pieces of art and covers and I thought you know this is it's a, it's as important to have the visual aspects as on point as 
what I'm feeling the musical aspects are. And I'm glad that that was the thing because it opened my world up to the poster collecting world and the poster artists and the, the band artists that do the gig prints because that's become a huge aspect of the project now. Um, but Emic had a lot of creative freedom within that. I think it was like, okay, make it look like a 70s pimp, a witch doctor, and I don't know. I don't remember what the other thing was that we we told him, and then all of a sudden he comes back with Angelo from Fishbone. <laughs> I mean, I always thought that that cover, look, I, to me, it always looks like Angelo to me a little yeah, it's bit. Got a bit of that, yeah. You know what I mean? And it's, yeah. and it's like, but it's not, but it, it always to me will be Angelo because the dude's just so hip and fly and just like, you know, the hat and, and all that. So, um, and through that, I, I learned pretty heavily with them about the art world and the, the world that like Amic and artists like Mark Spusta and uh, Mike Powers and, you know, some of these other amazing uh, visual artists exist in. And it's become a way to make things more sustainable because music doesn't sell. So if I can have some badass artwork, and I can reproduce that towards either the artist fan base or our fan base who might like to hang it on the wall, then, you know, that makes up for the fact that, you know, I might put 150000 bucks into an album and not recover any from song sales. And that that's the tough dance. It's like, you know, trying to keep new stuff coming for the listeners but it's like well who's paying for it <laughs> you know it's not coming through sales so any revenue stream you can get is a good thing yeah yeah so it's you know so the art has definitely played a huge aspect in it now it's 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 become um to me just as important as the music it's a it's a relationship, you know, all the way around with the, with the music and the art. Well, just tying back to P Funk again, the Funkadella covers, you know, oh. that that was such a intimate connection with the whole movement and the music. And Pedro Bell passed away recently, uh, that great artist for Funkadelic. But um, there's another common thread right there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when the record finally hit the streets and was out for a while, I mean, how did you feel about how it uh, performed, how it was received? Uh, because from what I could tell, mostly it was well-reviewed. And I, I think it's a really strong record myself. So. Oh, thank you. I was thrilled. I was so, so thrilled with, with how it was received. Um, it reached areas that went well beyond what I had hoped. Um, it did well sales-wise too, which was nice. It was um, the we did this limited edition vinyl that went over really well. Um, yeah, I was I was really stoked. I was happy. Just I was just happy to have it out. 
because it had been like five years since we had actually hit the first note recording till time it actually came out between the logistics and getting the packaging down and and just the mixing i mean <laughs> the mixing uh, the mixing and the editing was an interesting process because a lot of a lot of what we did we were all in the same room together so there was all kinds of bleed from track to track and it was just you know we we created we created a little extra work for ourselves probably but um but yeah and then that was part of the learning process you know we we were learning every bit of that that way with that album because there was no blueprint to that i mean there's definitely been collaborations there's definitely been um you know large gatherings of players but this was different and we just kind of had to make shit up as we went along and hope you know if we were going to hit a wall the airbags would deploy or you know so you know some kind of some kind of safety measure would come in and at least halfway save us what what kind of feedback did you get ultimately from the players when they heard what came out of it i think they were i mean they were all really I think they were all really, really happy with it, um, because it for us it 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 tells a story for me and and when I've talked to some of the other players, it tells a story about that window of time that we were all down there. Like for example, "Wake Me Up," that the tune that this, the country song. That song came about because Ralph Roddenberry. Um, he couldn't make it to the sessions until Wednesday of that whole week. And he had driven through the night and was just so tired. And I, I think he went to lay down and, and wound up oversleeping. And we were all at the studio at that point jamming on this, on this track. And Ralph comes in, kind of sing and wake me up. Don't let me sleep too long. I don't want to miss what's going on as a you know just messing around because he had overslept and didn't want to miss the fun we were having and that's how you know that song that song happened and um to later find out that Belita had always wanted to be on a country song was amazing and, mm -hmm. and this was the one for her um yeah how bittersweet was it that you know gary had passed i think in 2010 or 11 so he wasn't around when this came out and i'm not sure what year belita uh left us yeah belita i believe was 2011. um that would be something that i always carry with me um belita and gary ultimately kind of turned into the mom and dad equivalent in the music industry for me and i felt like not being able to hand them the finished product of something that we had all worked so hard on and we were all so excited about. That was that was a tough one. It, it really was. And um because I I I felt like, you know, it, it, all of us felt like things were just getting started. And to lose 
two individuals that believed so much in what we were doing and that were as amazing of people that they were. Um, I think it left, it left a, a pretty big void in the project for a minute. Because I, I was looking at Gary a lot for what the next move was. What should, what should I do? Like, I didn't know. Like, like, I, like we had talked about this. And my first time in the, the studio, I, I hadn't even really been in the industry that long. So, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was heavy duty. Um, the, yeah, the Scheider family and, and the Woods family, they're, they're such very important parts of this project, but so much more beyond this that happened well before my time. And what seems to be regularly happening is people aren't getting the kind of recognition that they deserve for their contributions. And that's been a very hard thing to watch over the years beyond just the loss of them has been people that Gary and Belita dedicated their lives to you know, not necessarily being there when things are tough or continue to be tough. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the big old nasty get down or anything like that. I'm talking, you know, the reality of people not getting their writer's share, people not getting, you know, different, different things. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it is very, very hard to uh, stomach and this sort of process. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but you know, the you know, leaving that on a positive note, though, you know, there's Belita and Gary. Um, they they forever have impacted the dynamic of this project and there's there's aspects that still go on that had they not um shown us the the way we we probably may not have had some of the doors open that did and uh, yeah i'm gonna be forever grateful as a matter of fact let me show you this real quick i i don't i don't this sits in my my office most of the time. I don't really bring it out too much, but um, this right here this is uh, one of Gary's. This is wow. nice. One of two modulus uh, guitars that were done for him, and uh, Garrett. Um, I'm, I think Garrett plays the the other one still, um, but this one this one's got quite a story because Gary would like throw his guitar 
off the stage and let one of the production team people deal with it. And that particular, this particular time, he stepped on the cable and threw the guitar up and came slamming back down and cracked the neck off of it. So, wow, <laughs> lucky it didn't crack someone's head too. Yeah. So, so that's yeah, that, that's his guitar. There's, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of memorabilia and whatnot laying around here from, <laughs> from those days. How many bases do you have in your collection now? Probably 40. Wow. Yeah, it's out of control. <laughs> <laughs> On that volume one and even uh, over to volume two, um, how did you decide, you know, what tracks you would lay some bass on or not? Um, you know, I kind of took the stance with volume two that I was more interested in focusing on a production side and um, wasn't feeling super, I just wasn't feeling like I had a lot to contribute musically on the bass playing side to it. And I wanted to also kind of set a precedence that just because somebody was on volume one doesn't mean they're going to be on volume two. And if they're not on volume two, doesn't mean they're out of the project. It just means that we've got a lot of different players that I feel all need to be, uh, need to have the light shined on. And um, I'm no different, you know, than anyone else. You know, I, I don't need to be on every one of our tracks. I love having um some of my favorite bass players playing on them and and quite honestly i feel like um there's times that my my playing doesn't serve the song the best and to me i don't i don't want to stand in the way of something being a, a great tune because i wanted to be the bass player on it i just recently fired myself from a song George Porter has it right now mm -hmm. so it's like you know it's, it could you know it could be a lot worse but you know stuff like that it, it's you know um well it, it's there for us to all get some I, I, I like listening back to it as a as a fan a lot of times and if I'm playing on it, then I'm focused on what I would have been doing differently or this or that. And it gives me a chance to kind of objectively hear things a little clearer with the project. What, um, what were some of the most significant things that were different about putting the second one together versus the first one? Um... I would say just kind of having an idea of different X factors that might come into play that we otherwise wouldn't have known about previously. Um, understanding, for me, it was, it was understanding how to let it be what it's going to be and, and use the same kind of formula that happened a little bit by default in um, New Orleans, which was trust in the room, trust in the players and, and you know, the music will happen. Um, whereas before we just, we had no idea, you know, 
it, we knew it was important to have different controlled environments to be able to get work aspects done, um, which, you know, we didn't have all that in place at the time when we were doing volume one. You know, it was really just kind of a lot of the logistics and the back office stuff. The, the formula of capturing the music was the same. Now, volume two started, when did you start putting that together? Because the record came out in 2018. So what was the timetable on that one? 2013 probably was, I, I think that's when we started that one. And you actually recorded it when? In two th yeah, it was, it was 2013. We recorded so like, Yeah, because we, when we do those, sessions now that yeah that was that was one of the things that was different is we we had studio time ready to go for volume two we we knew that we were gonna have a couple days jamming in the house that we probably write a bunch of stuff and then you know we would need to go to the studio pretty quickly to to get it tracked how important to you is the environment of the recording you know um in terms of not only the the vibe but also sonics well it's it's important um you know vibe obviously is for me a, a super super key piece of the the project but sonically i mean i'm spoiled now because i've been working on most of the stuff up at studio 606 that's a you know world-class facility that um that's owned by by a band that is all about you know preserving you know the history of that neve console that's up there and having just dynamite recording capacity and capabilities so that place, you know, that's changed the expectation of what kind of sound I want to get out of the out of the different sessions. I, I mentioned some of the um, people that were on this one. I think at the intro, um, and um, how did you or how did it come to be? I mean, there's some eclectic, you know, people on this one. And some people we haven't we hadn't heard from in a while. People yeah. like Speech or Taylor Dane. Yeah, how did folks like that actually become involved? Well, I mean that's that's part of the fun of the project because, like, you know, I basically just handpick my favorite players from any era, any instrument, any band. Um, Taylor came about because Jeffrey Suttles, who is one of the primary drummers on Volume Two um had been working with taylor for like 25 years and he invited me out to one of her shows and i remember i was like oh yeah I, I really liked taylor's stuff when i was you know i was like in seventh grade i had my first slow dance to her song there you go and um it's like yeah i think i'll go out so i, I show up she gets on stage and it's just like hit after hit after hit after hit. I'm just like, whoa, that was her too. And she could still just belt. Like her voice was so on fire. 
And I was like, you know, it'd be pretty awesome to get Taylor Dane in the project. No, everybody would be like, Taylor Dane, what? And then to put Taylor on a song with the bass player from Mudvayne, that got even more fun. Because, <laughs> like, you couldn't have any two further extreme styles of music. Um, yeah, so Taylor, I wound up meeting Taylor after the show, and, and we, we ended up going out for lunch not long after and got chatting about it. And, um, then we started doing a lot of work together for different stuff, and, and she did the song for us for the album. And that was awesome. And then Speech, I met him through my friend Kelly, who was doing a hip-hop interview or a hip-hop documentary. And she had um, set up a, an interview of Speech, and I, I tagged along for that. And that's how that came about. So it's, it's basically like, you know, between albums, I wind up meeting just a ton of different people. And my phone is kind of like the who's who in the industry at this point. So it's kind of like I'll scroll back through my phone and be like, oh, that would be fun to see if this person might want to, you know, add a little something to this song or, or that song. You know, I feel like I, I, you know, I have a little bit of what you're talking about because, you know, when I do this program, there's, you know, so many people that I reach out to and I try to coordinate this and I got to deal with all of their tour schedules and their personal lives and they'll, you know, set stuff up, they'll cancel, have to reschedule, you know, it's all this like flux going on at all times. Yeah. And so many guys that I dream of getting and sometimes I'll get them, sometimes it'll happen later. Sometimes, especially with the older ones I'm dealing with, they might never make it on um, because they're not with us anymore, which is a real bummer. But um, yeah, I can only imagine you know all those moving pieces, man. <laughs> it keeps it. It keeps it interesting and keeps me on my toes. And I think I read you say, and I totally agree with it too, is that you know you're so much better off when you can get direct to the artist, yeah, and not have to deal with that bureaucracy or of you know any of the middle people. Yeah, it's yeah, and it's it's no disrespect to management or the chain of command. What it, what happens is, oftentimes management, the chain of command, don't. It doesn't resonate on the creative side for them. They're looking at it as, well, they're mom and pop type of operation. They probably don't have a big budget. I'm gonna have to spend a lot of time doing this. It's probably easier not to let him through to the artist. But if you can talk to the artist, the artist might be like, wow, that's the most awesome shit I've ever heard of. I'll see you there tomorrow. Right. I'll call my manager and let them know to butt out. <laughs> and it's like, okay. You know, it's because I have to I have to sit on the management side too with the project. So I get like the whole aspect of like, you know, you you want to be paid for your time and, and the effort, but sometimes it's not about that. It's about the creative side and what might need to happen. It might be more important for that artist to do our session than it is for us to do the session with the artist. Here's why. Because sometimes the artist is so controlled by the record label or the fan base or by the band that they feel boxed in and they feel like they've 
creatively hit a wall where they can only go so far with the set of tools they have to work with and the environment they're working in. At our sessions, there's no one saying don't do this or don't do that. It's like, go for it. Like, have fun. And what comes back a lot of times is, I remember Chad from the Peppers was like, man, I never get to do this stuff anymore. This was so much fun. And it was like, yeah, that's awesome. Because like, they're getting to just be themselves in a lot of ways and be musicians again that just want, not that they're not being musicians with their, their other projects they're working on. It's just, there's no ceiling here when we're doing it, you know, they, the sky's the limit. Go on whatever journey you want to go on. If it's a 40 minute journey, cool. Let it be a 40, journey, you know, 40 minute journey. There's not gonna be somebody sitting there saying, don't do that, because we're supposed to be doing this right now. So, you know, there, there's a lot, of, a lot of give and take on both sides. We mentioned Chad, I mean, with them, my favorite record by them was Blood Sugar Sex Magic, and they were holed up in that house in the Hollywood Hills with Rick Rubin. Yeah. Magic came out of that. Yeah. That was magic. No pun intended, but yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so on, on volume two, you have a track, the one that Vernon reads on. Mm -hmm. There's like, it's kind of historic in a way because it's the first time that Vernon Reed and talk about the other players on, the, on that one. So that's got Norwood Fisher, Angela Moore, and Walter Kibbe from Fishbone, all original Fishbone members. Uh, of course, you mentioned Vernon, and then uh, Kendra Foster and Greg Thomas from P-Funk are on that. So, so it's uh, first-time members of P-Funk, Fishbone, and Living Color have all been on a track together. But, I mean, everybody's everybody's on that track. I think there's like 30 people on that with the, the group vocal. I mean, we've even got a couple guys from Foo Fighters side project singing on that. And I mean, it's just, it's a whole cast of characters. And the record, you have Fred Wesley on there too, who's another guy who's been on this show and just such a idol of mine. I mean, oh, Fred's awesome. Oh man, the way he phrases, just incredible. Um, Fred's, Fred's incredible. Yeah. So uh, this record, the volume two, I would say came out not quite as a little more mellower, a little more R&B, a little less funk than the first one. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, it is. It, it's I think we focused more on the vocal aspect of the songs. Well, I don't know about that. Um, Cause I mean, when we do our songs, we basically do the instrumental beds first and then we send them out to the vocalists to write their lyrics around. So I don't know what was necessarily, we didn't have as many of the New Orleans players on volume two. And we didn't do a lot of it in New Orleans in volume two. so. Yeah, that could have had something to do with it, but it's it wasn't by design. It's just that was the vibe that was happening during those sessions. Um, 
there's stuff that didn't go on that will be on volume three that were from those sessions that were probably a little bit more funky and um, a little grittier. But I was cu I was curious if there was a actual attempt to be, try to be a little more commercial, maybe sell a little more. I know that kind of goes counter to what the whole thing is sort of about, but I was wondering if that no, played any role. Not really. Um, it, it dances around the back of my head every once in a while about, and and I have a lot of people that that say, well, maybe you should do it like this to give a more contemporary sound or this or that. And it's, um, I don't know if I want to create for like intentionally now music. Like I like the music to kind of just happen and be what it's going to be and whatever space and time it fits into is where it fits. Um, there's some pop, suggestions to you know try to um you know get, get songs a little bit shorter and you know do editing or we've never like we've never used auto-tune we've never i mean everything that's on those albums is a hundred percent human uh, so because of that i feel almost a little purist sticking to that form for this project and if you know we get into stuff that's a little more commercial or poppy driven maybe that's a different project maybe that's something that's made to be you know churning out songs for today and tomorrow whereas this project is kind of um more of a historical journey of different players throughout time and you know remaining pretty pure to the, the natural instrumentation. For this one, you did a, a Kickstarter campaign. Oh God, I hate Kickstarter. Oh yeah, so I'm guessing that didn't work out too well. No, it, it, it was. It just wasn't worth the. It wasn't worth the amount of time and aggravation for the little bit of money that came out of it. And I feel like in the end, I probably lost money on it because we, you know, we had a video that cost money to produce. I mean, just all this stuff. It was just like, fuck. <laughs> and now it's like you type the band name up and there's like Kickstarter is the first whatever. And it's like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to sound ungrateful. Like I'm super grateful for everybody that pledged, but the Kickstarter system is not set up to be, you know, user friendly. Like it's a lot of fucking work. Mm -hmm. And at yeah. the time, like I felt like, yeah. <laughs> so no, no filters today on this. This no, one. that hey, the truth and rhythm, baby. That's what it's about. Yeah. <laughs>